Hello and welcome to the Government Digital Service Podcast. Uh, my name is Angus Montgomery, I'm a senior writer at GDS and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Kit Collingwood, um, currently at DWP but um, recently announced soon to be leaving and uh, getting an exciting new job um, in agency world. So we'll be talking to Kit about uh, time in government and looking back over some of the things that she's done. So thank you for joining us Kit. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Kit, just to kick things off, um, could you tell me a little bit about your role at DWP, your current role, and uh, some of the things that you do there? Uh, sure. Um, so my role is Head of Data Transformation for the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, so what my teams do is we work in the intersection between data, digital and technology to improve services and improve decision making. And how did you end up there? What's your sort of career path been so far? Because you've been around, well I think it's fair to say you're a well-known figure in, <laughs> in digital government. You've been around digital government for a while. What, What's that, what's that journey entailed? Um, it was a huge cosmic accident, really. Um, <laughs> I, I worked actually in the engineering sector for five years after I graduated. I was a proofreader and a translator oh, for wow. five years. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to be in the public service in some capacity. So I, in 2009, joined the civil service Fast Stream. Yeah. I was a policymaker for three years, working on different areas of justice policy. And I worked in Parliament for a while, putting a bill through Parliament and when I came from the end of that um, experience, I almost left the civil service because the ways that I thought that policymaking and parliamentary work were happening were so antiquated and so out of touch with the average person's experience that I'd really um, sort of lost faith with the, a lot of government ways of working. And yeah. I was really saddened by a lot of what I'd seen. There was really no um, empathy or contact with um, people on the outside of Whitehall and I felt myself really distanced from average human experience. Um, and at the same time, I uh, fell into a delivery manager job at a place called the Office of the Public Guardian, mm. which is one of the executive agencies of the Ministry of Justice. Um, I applied for it as a fast stream role, so it's just one of the regular rotation roles. Yeah. I didn't know what a delivery manager was. <laughs> um, I didn't really know how the internet worked, um, and I knew nothing about agile or about technology. Yeah. Um, I applied for this role called delivery manager, which looked quite fun, and it turned out to be the delivery manager for the lasting power of attorney service, which yeah. was one of the first exemplars in the yeah. GDS transformation program. So this was coming towards the end of 2012, um, which is why I've been around for a long time, because that's the beginning of digital government, I suppose, was around that time, yeah. uh, in the way that we know it now. Uh, GDS was about a year old, really. Um, and I had an induction that was um, hilarious in hindsight, where my boss sat me down on my first day and she said, here's your induction, I've just quit. <laughs> um, so my boss quit on uh, my first day and she was head of the transformation program for the Office of Public Guardian. Um, and I, being the cheeky youngster that I was, went to her boss and said, can I have her job, please, <laughs> on a temporary promotion. And he was foolish enough to give it to me. And that's how I came into digital government. Oh, wow. So I was the accidental head of a transformation program that I had no idea how to lead. But <laughs> I did have some ideas about how I thought the place could be um, better run. Yeah. Um, so... At that point, um, I was working with a guy called Chris Mitchell from GDS, who was yeah. one of the very first sort of transformation partners which GDS would place with departments to help them understand how to do digital. Um, um, he and I got on very well, um, and I also got on very well with Mark O'Neill, who was the other person yeah. sort of uh, in place at the Ministry of Justice, uh, which is where OPG was. 
Um, so they began to teach me the ropes about what this thing called digital was because I yeah. didn't have a clue. I didn't know what a software developer did. I had no idea about how all of this worked. Um, and then really the first six months of that were just me learning and learning and learning. Um, very quickly I met a few people who would completely transform how I thought about government. Um, Tom Loosemore, yeah. Mike Bracken, Richard Pope, Tim Paul, yeah. um, and a few others. Uh, so I would go to um, the old buildings in Hoban, yeah. and that's how I learned what digital government was, was from those people. And um, they really taught me the basics of um, why this thing was necessary, yeah. what transformation meant, um, and they inspired me to stay in public service. I'm interested in, because um, you sort of described in your early career, you were becoming frustrated at the kind of lack of human-centeredness or lack of humanness of government, but you didn't know what digital meant. So no. you kind of obviously had a lot of empathy and you understood that government needs to be more user-centered, but at what stage or how did you realize that digital was a way or the way to do this, or is digital the way to do this? Um, no, I don't think digital in itself is the way to do it, but mm. it's one of the tools that we need to be able to do it. Mm. So the, the ability for technology to bring services into people's homes and everyday lives is part of the way that government should reapproach um, uh, human connection. I'm yeah. fairly convinced about that. Um, but it's only a subset, I think. We, I think, need fundamental retraining in empathy skills, or training, yeah. not retraining. Fundamental training in empathy skills. Um, in order that we can approach the people we serve with compassion. And that is not, um, that's not sort of pure cuddly thinking. There's a huge economic benefit to understanding end users um, better. Yeah. Because if you understand the impact of your ideas and your policies on uh, the average person, then you can more effectively implement those policies. And yes, that, that to me just stands to reason. So m to me, high empathy has uh, financial gains for government as yes. well. Um, and it frustrates me that people don't often uh, see that. Um, but to put that aside, um, the way that, to answer your original question, the way that I um, sort of connected this idea of human um, uh, connection and digital government uh, was through um, user research, the sort of right, doggedness yeah. of, of user research. And quite quickly coming into, um, I think I inherited a team of sort of two or three people um, at the OPG, and they were bolstered by some GDS folk. Mm. I mean, it's a dream to have somebody like Richard Pope being able to effectively just consult on your ideas mm. with, and that's that's kind of um, an incredible privilege to have had. Um, but there was also this cohort of user researchers, and I didn't know what one of those w was. Yeah. Um, so just observing them at close quarters, uh, this idea of iterating your on your ideas, not doing a massive big bang thing, and then just sort of hoping it works, yeah. uh, which was, that is the way that government has and had done things. And suddenly there was this cohort of people who would do something small and then test it, see if it worked, um, and then do something else and then test it, see if it worked. Um, and I saw the potential for that outside of technology. Yes. So I could see the application of that in uh, policy making yes. very easily. I could see the application of that even in lawmaking, which is more controversial, but I can see that. Yeah. And in fact, uh, lawmaking is iterative, actually. It, it goes through both houses several times. Um, but to me, the, the connection to um, end users is still lacking. And um, it's got huge application for customer service as well, iterating on your ideas. N none of those, the things I've just said are remotely original, they all happen now, but mm. at the time it was quite revolutionary. Mm. So this idea of getting in a room with people who would be on the receiving end of your stuff, mm. was that was huge to me. And that really 
reinvigorated my faith in public service. And can you describe for people who weren't around, um, say back then, it wasn't that long ago, but in 2012 when the Exemplars programme was running, what, what was the Exemplars programme? How, how did it function and what was the purpose of it? Well, it was 25 um, high volume services that had a huge potential to be transformational. Mm -hmm. um, so it was things, so lasting power of attorney was one, and that's the ability to give somebody the power to act on your behalf if you lose mental health. Um, and there were things like carer's allowance, which is part of my current department, Department of Work and Pensions. Mm -hmm. um, and also some less emotive but high volume stuff. So a lot of the DVLA's digital services, um, a couple of them fell into that transformation yeah. program as well. So these were high volume services that would show the potential for digital government. And they were acknowledged as being, you know, the starting line really. Yeah. It was to get 25 of them into beta within a certain timescale to show the pace that was potentially there. Um, and for me to begin to develop the skills that government would need to be able to be digital for the future. Yeah. One of the things which um, has really dragged, it's a, it's a lot better now, but one of the things that really dragged was this acknowledgement from government that we need this massive cohort of skills to be able to be sustainable in digital yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, beyond something that was a program shape, you know, beyond something finite. So I used that exemplar program to and build up a lot of trust and support in what I was doing so I could hire the right kind of people because yeah. I could see that this wasn't going to go away. Yeah, yeah. And what was, it, how did they actually function day to day and what was the kind of relationship between, because the Exemplars programme was kind of run by GDS with these departments. Yeah. How did that work in practical terms? We Was there a sort of mixed GDS, MOJ team? What, yes, how did that work? there was initially, yeah. Um, and then GDS slowly peeled off. Yeah. Um, I'm wary that I'm speaking entirely from my own experience. And I know that <laughs> I know that I had an overwhelmingly positive experience yeah. of it. Um, other departments I know felt almost affronted that GDS were coming in and sort of telling them how to do mm. their own services effectively. And I know that there was tension there. Why? Why do you think your um, experience was positive in that sense? Because GDS was still coming in and kind of telling you or showing you a yeah. way of doing something. Why do you think that worked? I never, I never felt work. that I was being told anything. Right. Maybe it's because I was so keen to listen. Yeah. So there was, um, the, I, I felt very humbled by being in this new role. So part of it undoubtedly will be how willing I was to listen to them. Yeah. Um, I was in a new executive agency. So the OPG was new to me. The Office of the Public Guardian was new. So I was learning the professional domain I was in. I was learning the technical domain. And I was learning about digital government. Yeah. So I felt extraordinarily empty headed, but um, I'm a really good leader. So I knew I could lead the thing. Yeah. I knew I'd have the right ideas, um, but I had so much to learn and probably me being so open to learning helped to smooth that path. Yeah. If I'd have had slightly more um, uh, emotional, professional capital invested in what had already gone before, yeah. maybe it would have gone less smoothly. So that, that was definitely part of it. And the other thing is, um, I recruit curious people. So yeah. the team that I brought in to work with me in the OPG, we were secondees from operational centers, people from policy making, some external hires. Um, there was always, I always um, promoted a culture of partnership with GDS. Yeah. So for yeah. me, they were friends from the beginning. Yeah. I had no reason not to have that attitude and other people did. And I suppose the other thing, the other kind of, uh, truism that's spoken about the exemplars is that they were really really difficult to work on and that 
there was burnout and that there were people working incredibly hard and getting incredibly frustrated and was that something you experienced as well or I didn't burn out I found it hugely energizing mm. um, and again I think my teams were protected by the fact that we did have such a positive relationship we um, I'm, I'm quite keen on um, sustainable mental health so mm. we never were a team that would work till midnight or yeah we never thought that was cool. We never thought there was anything cool about that. So it never felt very tense in our office. It never... And also, it's you have to embrace a bit of humility in what you're doing. You're yeah. doing something great, and we had a great sense of pride about that. Um, but it's not uh, it's not brain surgery. Nobody was going to die if we all knocked off at 6 p.m. instead yeah. of 10 p.m. So you, we took it incredibly seriously, but not too seriously. So yeah. we, we never did burn out. We were in extraordinarily focused yeah we basically did one thing for nine months and then we did a second thing for another nine months <laughs> so, uh, so sustainability was always on my mind and I found very quickly um because I got very pr promoted quite quickly at that time I was in danger at the end of my time of OPG of losing um uh losing uh visibility of individual products being delivered mm. so i always had this awareness that you can reach a tipping point where people will start to feel out out of focus right. and i'd known that from my own experience so i i always tried to have empathy with my teams and make sure that they could work at a pace that suited them yeah and that they understood i think because the other the other thing about working in that sort of environment is you're delivering so quickly you kind of need to Oh, I don't know, this is kind of me positing this, I suppose. You kind of need to step back and look at what you've achieved as well. And, yeah. and if you're delivering really quickly, that can be quite hard to do. Yeah, it's, it's a, it was a whirlwind. It yeah. always felt like a happy whirlwind. Um, and a lot of the, we had like the, the lowest turnover of the whole place, mm. you know, really high engagement. Um, and there are people still working in that digital team that have been there now for five, five or six years. Mm. So it was, a, it was a good place to be, but the, the pace was... Um, was high mm. and I remember a year in we looked back at what we'd done and we'd done one service from scratch to public beta <laughs> one service an additional service from scratch into alpha we'd done the first digital strategy okay. and we'd quadrupled the team size we'd redrawn how we did recruitment yeah we changed the pay scales um, we'd redone our commercial contracts so that we were outside of big IT contracts and what else had we done? There was something else what as well. Oh, we'd redesigned the governance as well so we could do agile governance. And we sort of looked back after a year and we were like, holy, we, we did a lot. Yeah. And, and a lot of it was, um, there was a real lack of self-importance to that team. Yeah. We knew we were doing good stuff. Yeah. But in when we wrote our strategy, it was like eight pages. We did it in about three weeks. Yeah. So there was no, there's a real lack of fanfare in a good way. Um, you know, we it was just heads down and, and crack on and try not to show off too much. It's interesting you say that because that's one of the things because I joined GDS in 2016 and I'd been because I'd been a journalist before so I've been a sort of observer of digital government and one of the things that really struck me about what GDS and what people in working in digital were doing was that they were delivering stuff so people were talking GDS in particular was really vocal about the work that it was doing but yeah. it was showing the work it wasn't talking about abstract things that or concepts or strategies it was like here's the thing that we've done yeah. here's how it works and that yeah. was really inspiring as someone outside the um the the phrase the strategy is delivery mm. is um 
it's, it's banded around by everybody now. And it's almost had its heyday. People have almost stopped saying it in, mm. in some circles. But I can't describe how powerful that was to somebody like me who'd come out of the most bureaucratic part of Whitehall, you know, mm. the middle of a policy team, a kind of strategic policy team. And I'd come out of, I'd worked for all three uh, main political parties by that point. So I joined government in 2009 um, and I'd worked for the coalition uh, government, which I was working for at that time. Uh, so working with a lot of different ministers, doing things like ministerial handover, mm. loads of briefings, um, lots of policy documents, lots of consultation, very slow, sluggish pace. Great work being done, but sluggish. Mm. And suddenly this idea that we could be released from writing constant documents to prove the worth of what we were doing was just just ridiculously revolutionary. Yeah. And I can't, I can't exactly describe why. It's so obvious <laughs> that you should get on with the work rather than spend a million years doing a 100-page you know, business case. But to me, that was like, oh, my yeah. Christ, I can do this so differently. And that's why our strategy took three weeks and it was eight pages. And our business case was like 10 pages. Yeah. The, the hidden bit about that was a lot of me putting my neck on the line saying, yeah. no, no, I'm going to write this short. It's going to yeah. be really short, yeah. really simple, trying to simplify everything. Yeah. And that's where the effort went. It's, it's a funny analogy, actually, because it's the same way that the design patterns went as well. Yeah. Government websites have been massively over-designed. Then GDS comes out with something that's basically a white page with a green button in the middle with a bit of highlighting on it. And everyone's like, oh, that's how we're going to design things now. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, yeah, we just basically don't put much on the page. And everyone's like, oh, right. And it's a really analogous approach to what I took to everything after business cases, yeah. documentation, recruitment processes, governance, everything went the same way. You don't need to clutter it yeah. with all of that noise. It's just so incredibly powerful because I think, because you, you were in government while this was happening, but it, I, was in a, I was reporting on the private sector and the private sector organisations weren't doing this. It took an organisation within government or a group of people within government to drive this kind of simplicity yeah. home. It was, and, and kind of working in government now and understanding the complexities of it yeah. It's just un unbelievable almost. Yeah, that and of course it peed people off. Of course yeah. it did. Everybody who'd ever built one of those websites would be peed off <laughs> because that's your work being rubbished by these people, all of whom were pretty young. Yeah. Um, they were highly paid because they'd come from the private sector. They were off, siphoned off from Whitehall. Yeah. They were other. And they were consistent. GDS were consistently othered by a lot of big government departments. Yeah. And still are, yeah. frankly. So I don't think you can have... You, I don't think you can be a rebel of that magnitude without peeing off a hell of a lot of people. What I took as my task was to try and... I, I'd been in a policymaking community that thought the digital government were a load of jeans-wearing hipsters. Mm. Now I was in a digital community that thought policymakers were a load of 50-year-old mm. white fuddy-duddies. And elements of both of those things are true. Mm. You know, there are jeans-wearing hipsters in digital government and there are white middle-aged fuddy-duddies in policymaking, but that doesn't mean that we're not, not trying to do the right thing. Yeah. So from that point, my mission was try to just trying to connect people so that you, you can't do anything without trust. It was just trying to increase the level of trust between the different communities that I was operating in. Yeah. And how did you, because um, I guess we've talked a, a lot about the exemplars and the, the rapid pace of what's happening, the rapid pace of change, and touched on things like the controversies around that, but you've been in government now for a long time and carried on that work and how did you make it sustainable how how did you take that kind of environment and that thinking and s sustain it into into another department into another role into new teams I think it was a series of steps really and um, there were some mechanistic steps such as 
um, I began quite early to realise that the funding, government funding isn't set up for digital. Mm. But it is a bit better now. But at that point, you did project work. You yeah. know, you were funded for a blob of thing, and when the thing ended, you weren't funded for the thing anymore. Yeah. Well, that was never going to work with things like um, CICD. So the, the continuous delivery of technology doesn't work with our funding model. Yeah. And I blessedly realised that quite early. And I started to um, work very closely with finance and commercial business partners to smooth out that path so that things like this is so boring, but this was what it got it done. CapEx versus OpEx was yeah. well known and yeah. well charted. So that when we went, I didn't want to have a, a, a drop in the team that was sharp between a, this thing called build and this thing called run. Yeah. For me, that's still a false divide. Well, anybody who works with in a DevOps way, that, that's, that's a false divide. So I plotted with them to go from a full team size, say your team size is 10. Yeah. Over time, I would look to retain four of that team and I would yeah. build that into a business case and we'd have like a slide down from one to the other. Yeah. Um, and putting in the groundwork with those people who are naturally mistrusting of something where you it looks like you're kind of trying to game an existing process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just getting them to see what I was doing yeah. and these services... If you run these services well in perpetuity, you don't have to then have this change request a mil of a million pounds yes, a year down the line yeah, yeah. because you're continuously enhancing what you're doing. Yeah. But you can enhance it with a smaller team. And it wasn't always cheaper, actually, or it didn't always look cheaper, but I knew that you'd then, five years down the line, wouldn't have to buy the thing again because yeah. you'd have built it in-house. So it was a lot of donkey work of of redrawing everything about how we do f uh, finance and commercial work and commercial partnering and governance and all that kind of stuff. So that was part of it. Yeah. Um, part of it was government catching up. So digital became not weird while I was in the, you know, a couple of years in, call it 2014, digital government was then effectively becoming sustainable in its own right. Yeah. I had to fight a lot less hard to get the basics that I wanted to get done yeah. done. You know, in the early days, I had to have Mike Bracken come in and advocate for the things I wanted to get done. It was yeah. that ridiculous. Yeah. I didn't need that by 2014. Yeah. Um, and at that point, I moved to Ministry of Justice Digital, yeah. the central digital team. Um, and that had people like Dave Rogers in it, yeah. who's, who's still there, yeah. um, who is great. Um, and you kind of move from sensible support people to sensible support people. Yeah. How do you kind of, well, I guess this is, in one sense, a stupid question, but how do you identify and how do you end up working with people like that? Like, how do you find allies? How do I find allies? Because I do get a sense there's kind of a network of people in yeah. different departments now, and, and the names are probably well known, of people who are doing good things. Who, yeah. How did we know, all find each how other? How did you all find each other, yeah. Um, I think we were all curious. Mm. So this community of um, the the well-known on digital government Twitter, <laughs> that, that community of people, um, you know, there's probably a couple of hundreds yeah. of us who've been around um, for, so, you know, call it five years or more. Dave mm. Rogers is one of them. Mm. All of the original GDSs are in there as well. Although, you know, many of us have gone our separate ways. For the ones who weren't the real inception, um, so the Mikes and Toms, mm. I think curiosity was a big bit of it. Mm. A lot of us um, found each other from um, being mutually introduced by well-networked people. So, 
people like Tom yeah. would introduce us sometimes. Yeah. You know, Ema Coleman was another one yeah. uh, for doing that. Um, Kathy Settle. You yeah. know, there, there was these people who knew people. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they'd say, oh, so-and-so. And then people would make some kind of connection between us. Yeah. And we'd almost invariably uh, get on. So that was part of it. Part of it was well, those of us who came out of Whitehall, yeah. as opposed to being um, external hires, um, found a natural empathy with each other because we'd been so frustrated by where we'd been. And we yeah. were generally known as being um, pains in the bum, basically, where we were. <laughs> and we were quite grateful. Yeah. I always think, you know, if you, in any meeting room, so you've got 12 people in a meeting room, you're the one that feels like really outre and the radical one. You're just in the wrong room. Yeah, yeah. Um, and suddenly you're in the right room and it's just this huge comfort. That was going to be my next question, is kind of what are you looking for in these people? Because it sounds like it's a mix of sort of bravery in a sense of like they're willing to take a risk with something. They've got convictions, but also they have empathy. Like, Yeah. Well, um, I probably can't swear in this podcast, can I? I think you maybe can. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll put, it, I'll put it the opposite way. Um, I only work with lovely people, is my rule. <laughs> so there is something about being kind and warm that is yeah. at the core of who, what I would the kind of person I would look to work with. Yeah. Um, but there's something about... Um, I, the way I put it is we want to reform the machine without breaking it. Yeah. So all of those people are massively impatient with the way the government works, massively frustrated, want to yeah. beat their heads against a wall, but basically love the place. Yeah. And if they leave, they'll always come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they are either civil servants through and through in their DNA, or you know that you'll see them again at some point in yeah. the future. And it's those people who care deeply about public service. Um, it gives them that lovely balance of wanting to do the right thing yeah. um, by end users, but without completely breaking the machine that they're working in. Yeah, yeah. It's a really hard balance yeah. to strike. Um, but when you find it, it's like gold dust. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're the best people. And the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, One Team Gov as well, because you were one of the... One of the founders of One Team Gov, is that right? You, yeah. yeah. And um, well, tell me first of all, tell me why it was set up and what the purpose of it is. Um, One Team Gov was born out of my frustration at the lack of empathy between government professions. Yeah. So it's the ultimate realization of my experience leaving policy making and going into digital government, really, <laughs> um, and having. S observed and then worked in such a, a tribal system where if you weren't us you were them and yeah. you weren't to be trusted well I'd belong to two tribes and I was like well where's the us in the middle of all this <laughs> them then if everybody's them um, so I spoke at a conference in March 2017 um, about and I gave a talk about data as it mm. happens um, that's what I'm working on at the moment and I was advised to go and see a guy speak after me called James Reeve, who mm -hmm. works for the Department for Education. Um, I had been told he was a great speaker. And I listened to him, I spoke to him afterwards, and we got on really well. And he was also coming out of policymaking and going into a digital role, so the same thing that I'd done, um, what, five years previously he mm -hmm. was now doing. Um, and we talked about the experience of how policymakers don't get on with digital people and mutual mistrust. And we'd said we'd both been to professional events, you know, we've been to policymaking events and digital events. Mm. 
but there was no rebel event just for it. Which wh- where's your, where are your generic rebels, regardless of background? You know, where is anybody? This welcome? is how you all find each other. If, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and the the tagline we often use for wanting gov is um, if you're tired of waiting for the revolution, start one yourself. Um, and that's not that we aim to start a revolution, that's really self-important, but we did want to have an event where you would be welcomed as a reformer regardless of your background. Yeah, you yeah. didn't have to be, you know, some wizzy fast streamer or yeah. you didn't have to be anything, really. And we just had a single event. Um, and as we were coming up to the event, we realised that we wanted to make it a community. Mm. So we, um, classic bit of partnership, um, Joe Landman, who works here as mm-hmm. a designer, designed us some branding and we built a little website um, and we got some regular meetups in, which yeah. are still going now, um, 18 months down the line. And all we aimed to do was just to give safe space to rebels, yeah. that sort. So those those people who don't want to trash the machine but want to make it better, yeah. we just wanted to be the people that they could go to. And that was it. It was, um, it was and is um, super simple, really. It's based yeah. mainly on net- networks, on connections, and on honest conversations with people. But the heartbeat of it is our... Um, uh, meetups that we have yeah. in uh, um, London, Cardiff, in the north, um, Scotland, Stockholm, internationally Ottawa. now. <laughs> yeah, so it is. It spreads internationally through that those same yeah. networks of of those um, positive rebels. Yeah, um, and yeah, I'm really I'm really proud of it. It gives such a safe space to those people who are just sitting in the wrong meeting room, yeah, yeah, being yeah. that single person. They just need to find the right meeting room, and we've given them that. One of the things that strikes me having talked about your time working in digital government is you've gone from, and this is kind of, a, 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 I suppose, illustrative of digital government as a whole, you've gone from working on an exemplar, so a single service or a single digital touch point, to working in an area where you're bringing together people from across different professions yeah. to look at kind of a much wider picture. Yeah. And that, to me, kind of illustrates the the broadening of digital government, how we think about it, from kind of these single touch points to suddenly these whole services or these whole kind of policies. Yeah. Um, do you, I mean, is that kind of how you see your career having developed? Do you think it has kind of gone yeah. like that? Yeah, I think it has. The um, It started off as a blob, you know, it yeah. was, we were almost a carbuncle in the beginning um, <laughs> and seen by some as a carbuncle as well. Um, and the world to make digital government sustainable. Well, you know, they say that it will be sustainable when we stop saying digital. Yeah. But we're not there yet. Um, and to my mind, you'll still need specialist technologists in government. So you'll yes. always have a thing called a technology team or a digital team or something. Yeah. So it's not quite the ambition to never say digital ever again, but it should evolve in meaning, I yeah. think, to encompass not just technologists, but people who are interested in internet-enabled reform, which is kind of how I would characterize it. Yeah. So yeah, it's definitely evolved from being something where you're a heavily specialist team relatively separated from the rest of the organization to something where um, every profession is welcome. Um, And one of the things that um, I I get a bit, twitchy talking about things that I've done that I'm proud of because I get (laughs) self-conscious but there are a few and of them um, there's somebody called Kaz Hofton who was um, she worked for the Office of the Public Guardian and she was uh, one of our she worked in our call centre she's one of our operational people Mm. um, and we found her and she was an exceptionally good and is an exceptionally good product manager Mm. and we found her in operations and she 
um, proved very quickly that she was going to be better at this job than anybody else we could find. And we made her a product <laughs> manager. And I had to stand behind that decision, what proposed, and then stand behind that decision. And she needed to be, to be promoted about three times because the grade difference between operations and digital <laughs> was quite tricky at that point. Um, but we did that and it proved something. It yeah. proved that if you're this thing called operations, you don't have to stay there forever. Just as yeah. I hadn't in policy, you can transition your career actually. And people come into digital now and learn how to do product development. It's yeah. not, you don't need a million years to learn how to do it. You need a, a lot of smarts, a lot of empathy, very open ears, yeah. and then professional skills that you learn down the line. Um, and I was so glad that we gave her that break and that's something that I've done consistently ever since. It's not assumed that if somebody is a policymaker that they can never yeah. be a digital person or yeah. vice versa. And though it's the uh, same reason I started wanting Gov is it's kind of it's for this you don't have to stay in that tribe actually, you can go and work across. And I suppose where I am now working in data is a natural extension of that because to my mind there needs to be a data leap for government in the same way that there was a digital leap for yeah. government from 2011 onwards. D data people are still a little bit off in a silo in a corner being nerds. Yeah. Even They're even siphoned off from product teams. So one of the missions that I've had in DWP is to work intersectionally between digital data and technology so that we blur those professional boundaries. And some, somebody like a data scientist is a classic, um, you know, if you call them sort of a coder analyst, they're already a technologist and a data professional yeah so why do they have to sit over in that corner why can't they come and be in this product team yeah and embedding data scientists into product teams has been the one of the things that we've done in DWP to yeah. absolutely great effect yeah so again it's it's trying to fight the good fight every day for people dropping their assumptions about what somebody can and can't do, yeah yeah I think. yeah and just um before we finish up I'd like to ask you I suppose potentially at the risk of making you feel uncomfortable a couple of questions about you and your kind of how you operate, I suppose. And well, you said earlier in this conversation that when, when you were talking about going on the exemplar that you didn't know much about digital, but you knew how to lead. And you are one of the people in this world who's seen, I suppose, as a role model, as a leader. Um, what sort of behaviours do you hope that you're showing, that you hope that people kind of pick up? That you, what, what do you hope that you're role modelling that people will pick up from you? Um. I'm kind to people. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, the best behaviour. <laughs> there is, there's no, you can never have too much kindness in the world, I think. And I, I think I, I think I'm pretty consistently kind. I will say that yeah. about myself. Um, I'm, I'm very willing to re-examine what is a yes and what's a no. So I'm yeah. very dogged in the pursuit of what I believe to be right. Um, and I, I think that's a good role model for the bit of government I'm in because you have to be fairly persistent to get things done. And I've never taken a no at, to be a final no. I've always been able to chase down what I believe to be the right answer. I don't know if that's, um, maybe I'm ideological, but I've always tried to fight for the right thing. Um, I hope that I am seen as being passionate about diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Um, because I am. Um, um, although I'm a woman in technology and a gay woman in technology and a gay woman parent in technology, <laughs> um, my interests do go um, beyond that. And I w would hope that I have given um, other people space to progress where they thought they might not have that. 
yeah. space. So inclusiveness with um, age, grade boundary, um, professional boundary, colour, disability. I, I hope that um, other people, I hope that I'm not deluding myself that that is <laughs> something I'm known for. Um, and I, as I said, I do try and give my time to try and make the place a bit better. Yeah. Um, so things like one team gov, um, mentoring people, yeah, that kind of thing. I, I, if I were to leave an impression of my, myself, I hope that that would be in it. And who do you look to as a role model, or who inspires you at the moment, either within this world or outside it? I suppose. Am I allowed a few? <laughs> of course. <laughs> This is like a dinner party thing. Um, my girlfriend would have to go on that list. Yeah. Um, one of the most amazing product people I've ever observed, and the kindest person. Just for listening, because you, who, who's your girlfriend? Kylie Havelock. Kylie Havelock. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's taught me a lot about kindness and mm -hmm. about diversity and inclusion as well, and a million other things. <laughs> Um, my kids inspire me all the time. Uh, they're not constrained by what anybody expects of them. Yeah. And I love that about them. I try and learn from them um, and try and... They've made me challenge a lot of my assumptions about myself and about the world. Um, and then uh, professionally, um, I'd always say Laura Sampson, who mm -hmm. works at the DWP, who is um, the most consummately brilliant civil servant I've ever worked with <laughs> and has remained that to this day. She wins the prize. Um, she is incredible and inspirational. Um, and I would always say Tom Loosemore as well, mm. who's effectively, very quietly, without anybody knowing it, mentored me for about six years without <laughs> ever asking for anything um, in return and has quietly been responsible for several of my career moves <laughs> without ever taking uh, credit for it or yeah. asking for anything back. So um, given that this will be public, I'll say publicly, thank you to him. <laughs> um, he's done a lot for me without anybody ever knowing that. So I'll always be grateful. And um, just finally, if there's... One piece of advice you could give to someone. So say there's someone in, in your situation now going back, what was it, six years ago, kind of in a role, you're in a policy role where you're kind of thinking this isn't really what I'm interested in, this isn't giving me the empathy, the kind of the satisfaction that I want. What advice would you give to that person that you've learned over the last seven or eight years? Wow. Um, I'd say find a hero. It's always good to have somebody to look up to, to think, um, you know, what would so-and-so do in this mm. situation? I think that's always, it's always good to see a perspective that isn't your own. Um, I'd say a, a good dose of sort of um, mindfulness, for want of a better word. So realizing um, where you are on the frustration versus action scale. If there there can be a feeling among some civil servants in particular that they're so frustrated, the only thing they can do is le is leave, and yeah. that that has I've seen many people go their way, and it's not the it's not a bad thing to do at all. It's the only thing to do for a lot of people. But there's this tipping point, and if you're on this tipping point of oh my god, I want the world to be better, but I want to stay and make it better. Yeah. Um, I'd always say contact one team gov because you'll find <laughs> you'll find some like-minded people as well 
Um, but I'd also say to them, if any of those people are listening, you're not alone. Yeah. You know, so many civil servants are frustrated. It's, the civil service is frustrating, it will always be, but it's the best place in the world, yeah. my belief is. <laughs> and if you're on that tipping point where you're incredibly frustrated but believe you can do something better, it's not just you. Yeah. And if again, if you're that one person in the room of 12, you're just in the wrong room, go and find a, a different room and you can start to feel more normal. And there are so many lateral moves you can make yeah. to get that done and you might just start to be reinvigorated like I was. And those rebels are easier to find now, than they? Very easy to find now. Yeah, so Claire Moriarty is uh, one of them, and she's yeah. got one of the toughest jobs going in government at the yeah. moment. Um, and do you know what, Jeremy Hayward was one as well. He, yeah. was, a, he was one of the people who um, gave me advice, again, when he didn't have to, a very tough time for him, that showed me that truly he was on the side of the revolutionaries. He wanted to see reform as well. So you can move up the pay scale and up the ladder and be a rebel as well. You can do that. Yeah. Kit Collingwood, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us for that episode of the GDS podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to listen to any more of what we're doing, then um, please go to wherever it is that you listen to or download your podcasts and subscribe to the GDS podcast because we've got lots more exciting stuff coming up this year. Um, so we hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>